This is Dylan FM, the podcast that goes deep into the work and world of Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place with your host, Craig Danuloff. In our episode about Lay Down Your Weary Tune, Michael Gray made an interesting observation about how Bob Dylan has always been open to influence. Nothing he can use passes him by, but at the same time, he doesn't get swallowed up by anything. He takes what he needs, often hides it well, makes it his own, and the train keeps a rolling. In this episode, we're talking about another one of those influences. This time, we're focusing on the pre-war blues, which is the subject of Chapter 8 in Song and Dance Man, Volume 1 of the 50th Anniversary Edition. As you'll hear, this is probably the biggest overall influence that our man has mined over the full length of his career. The work Michael Gray put in uncovering the depth of this influence is incredible. This is a 112-page chapter in the book, and he cites and explains how dozens and dozens of specific pre-war blues songs and artists are connected to dozens of Bob Dylan songs from albums in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the first part of the 21st century. As he did with the other influences covered in this book, folk music, rock, and literature, Gray shows us exactly where and how Dylan was influenced, and more importantly, how he applied those influences. This is the final chapter in Volume 1 from Song and Dance Man. Looking back, I think it was all about influences and the extraordinary way that Bob has over his entire life been able to notice, internalize, and leverage the best of what he found in the world around him. There is no doubt he brought incredible skills and gifts and tenacity to the process. As Gray pointed out in an earlier episode, everyone had access to all the same resources that Dylan pulled from, but nobody but Dylan was able to do what he was with them. I hope you've been able to get a copy of the book from Amazon and see how incredibly effectively Michael conveys all of this on a page-by-page and chapter-by-chapter basis. It's impossible to read this book and not come away with an improved appreciation and understanding of Bob Dylan. If you haven't got the book yet, of course, there's still time. It's available worldwide in paperback and on Kindle. And our podcast series will continue into Volume 2, which is now available. There are links in the show notes. Our guest reader for this episode is Scott Bunn. Scott writes at Recliner Notes, and he did an amazing series of posts taking deep dives into Bob Dylan's songs last year, and he continues covering other artists as well. There's a link in the show notes for you to go read Scott's work at reclinernotes.com. If you're hearing this, you're on the public feed and will hear an abbreviated version of our discussion. To get the full extended episode for this and all of our shows, plus all of the podcasts on the FM Podcast Network, become a subscriber in Apple Podcasts or at fmpods.com. Now, here's our discussion with Michael Gray on Bob Dylan and the pre-war blues. All right, Michael, welcome again to the penultimate for us chapter in volume one. Yeah. The center of the book that's emerged for me 
to be honest, reading it as closely as I have and talking to you through these podcasts is this the stream of influences on on Bob Dylan. And, and we've talked yes. through folk and rock and literature and and everything else. But we now get to what is probably the biggest single influence and certainly the longest lasting, right? The, the, the folk and rock eras of Dylan to some degree were were short, but we all know now uh, the blues is still deeply there, both in his songs and even this week in his covers. The chapter begins with you talking about blues itself more than, more than Dylan. Uh, so let's hear the very beginning. The musical and poetic power the recurrently affecting magic of the pre-war blues is an astonishing joy to come upon and to delve into, even as an outsider in time, space, and race. It's like your early experience of rock and roll. It's as if you'd been born ready to hear it, even though you felt that it sounded like nothing on earth you've heard before. Because it's so crackly on record, so lo-fi, so immured behind this white noise wall, this black noise can seem inaccessible, unreachable. Don't be put off. You just sometimes have to play it terribly loud and maybe go into the next room. Then you'll hear all the joys and mysteries of esoteric vocals, guitar magic, sheer moody weirdnesses, all the synapse crinkling giddy hop that rock and roll gave you when you were 13. Yeah. I like that. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting point. And as I, told you privately i've been pulling up a lot of the music you reference in the chapter and listening and it is worth commenting that it's not often an easy listen for someone accustomed to what we listen to every day and you do have to like other things plow yeah. through it three or four or six times until it kind of sinks in or you figure out what's to listen to yeah i haven't tried the super loud yet but maybe that's a way in uh, I'd have to say, you know, a great deal of it depends on what label these people recorded for. Some labels come through quite clearly. I mean, the recordings comparatively clearly. The ones that uh, were done for RCA Victor Records, for example, like the first early, the early Blind William McTell tracks, they're pretty clear. They're, they're, you know, they're pretty there in the room with you. And similarly, people who recorded for labels under Columbia, again, pretty clear. The worst ones are, are the people who were unlucky enough to be on Paramount Records, where the white noise level is higher than the recording level. I mean, it's just pretty. And so this, this means that people like Charlie Patton are very demanding i mean they demand a great deal of the listener and if he weren't such a giant of the music who 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 would persevere that much So there is a great deal of variance between it, but obviously it was all mono. Phil Spector would say, what's wrong with that? 
and uh, and some of it is a great deal clearer than others. But the the comparison with early, the way that early rock and roll impacted you or anyone at, at age 12 or 13 or whenever it was. I mean, maybe it was only my generation who ever experienced rock and roll like that. I mean, maybe for everyone who is younger than me, and that is, after all, almost everyone, maybe for them, you know, rock and roll was just there all along and uh, and no more exciting than, uh, you know, the Kardashians or something. For my generation, at least, it was just this complete bolt from the blue rock and roll. You know, it was like the antithesis of everything we were being taught to respect and admire and be polite about. And when I discovered this pre-war blues music, it gave me a similar thrill. I was a middle-aged guy by then, mostly. For me, the people who had been there all along were people like Howling Wolf, the, the Chicago electric people because they had hit singles you know smokestack lightning was a hit record a hit single in the united kingdom anyway and this is in the 50s so this i heard some of those people alongside the rock and roll that was beginning that was happening exploding but uh for for the rest of it for the recordings made in the 20s and 30s um well this was this was a whole other universe and this is what Sam Charter says in his book, The Country Blues, 1959. You know, if people know about the blues, they know about the old classical women singers, Bessie Smith, Bar Rainey, and then they know about Muddy Waters and all the electric stuff. And he says there's this whole ocean of pre-war blues from the 20s by people with, to use a Bob Dylan phrase that he was actually using about a white guy, but nevertheless... These were people with a lone guitar and a point of view. And, of course, very few of them were successful in their lifetime. I've mentioned Blind Lemon Jefferson. He was, he was more or less the only one. He made money. He had a chauffeur. And up in the Appalachians, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from him, white guys, coal miners, were listening to him on their radio. What is one kind favor I ask of you? What is one kind favor I Whereas for most people, they didn't even, you know, give up their day jobs. They were uh, part-time musicians. They they were serving a local community, and they, uh, you know, if they got a record deal, they weren't really expecting it to change their life. And mostly, they were right because it didn't. And so I was listening to a lot of this music and that white noise wall of sound, unintentional wall of sound. First of yeah. all, I was thinking that someone surely is going to take all those master recordings and run them through modern technology and remove that because it's frankly pretty easy now. Imagine a pristine studio quality sound of every one of those records you've had to hear in the horrible way. It'd be pretty powerful. Yeah. If it hasn't been done, that would tend to indicate that, uh, that this stuff is assumed to be not very popular. 
We've made a playlist so you can listen to many of the songs that are discussed in this chapter and in this podcast. See the show notes for links to the playlists. The other thing I wanted to say about the process of listening or the process of coming in as a listener from today, which brings us to Mr. Dylan, is the Dylan references, as you found in the opposite direction, are all over. And the yeah. most of the playlists that I'm making from your reference in the book, it's fun to hear this authentic old, you know, 1920s song and all of a sudden hear a Bob Dylan line in the middle of it. It, it, yes. it gives modern listeners something to hook on to. Yeah, absolutely. It um, keeps us and, there. Uh, going down the road feeling bad. I'm going down the road feeling bad. Going down the road feeling bad. And I ain't going to be treated this way. And for me, that happened um, with the book. You know, I found Michael Taft's pre-war blues books. And one of them, I mean, mostly it was a concordance, which puts every and, but, and the together. And so you see from that what is an individually created line and what is a line that's been shared around through 112 different blues records. Because obviously when they made these records in the 20s, they had rather different ideas about intellectual property. Uh, copyright ownership. If you liked a verse, you imported it into your own song, you know. If it happened to strike you that uh, that a song about New Orleans could be just as, uh, just as pertinent as a song about Brownsville, Tennessee, then you would then you would adapt that verse and, and shove it in there. This was this was communal sharing uh, in a perfectly reasonable way. The thing is, uh, there was also a, a volume of Taft, which was just an anthology where he just wrote out the lyrics of these 2000 blues songs, um, one, one per page on this huge hardback book. I was flipping through this and, you know, to put it the wrong way around, I kept coming across bits of Bob Dylan. Uh, and I realized that yes, I mean it's a, it's a it's fun, it's a delight to to find them there. But then to to think about why they're there, how he has smuggled them in, how he has changed the meaning of a line, and, and also how he has sort of liberated an expression that was in danger of being treated with complete contempt by any young black American because it was a, a some fuddy-duddy old expression their grandparents used. But Dylan, to sort of revive this and, uh, uh, and put it into the mainstream of American vocabulary, this is a great thing for him to do. I mean, this is not, this is not stealing. This is you know, a brilliant creative use of language and is based upon an enormous respect for the culture that this arose from in the first place. Yeah, so we talked earlier as we looked at the other influences on him, how the timeline of his life had coincidentally put him in just the right place to be exposed to these things. 
And the same thing, as you, you've alluded to in earlier discussions, happened with the pre-war blues. He kind of arrived in New York right as or just after others had found these people and rediscovered them and, and brought them back. And in many cases, the the players were showing up in New York and he got to meet them and play with them. Yeah. And and yeah. so he was, he was ground zero to grab those influences. And to sit at their feet uh, uh, and watch where their hands moved on a guitar. Absolutely, yes. So you get to this in the book, and here's a passage where you talk about how he began to use and how he used these pre-war blues that he was learning. First, he claims no blues singer specialism like a John Hammond Jr. It isn't for him his trademark. His stance does not downgrade blackness per se, therefore does not carry the inherent subtext that blues is essentially a matter of style. Second, Bob Dylan's interest in special dexterity is in exploring the innards of the blues, taking from the blues the strengths of its vernacular language, to some extent musically as well as lyrically, and building them into the core of his own work, into the machinery of his own creative intelligence. Expand a little bit about, and you, you do extensively in, in the chapter, about how Dylan works this in. Because as you point out, he does quote, but he often, in, in Dylan-esque ways, that, or, or perhaps we'd call it Dylan-esque, refurbishes them or, or re, yeah. repositions them in, in, in what you, you argue a number of times, particularly compelling, uh, innovative ways. One thing is a, a, a basic, it doesn't always work, but a basic rule in, in Dylan's creating this stuff is that if he writes a song as a blues, if he writes a blues, uh, particularly the sort of three-line thing where the first two lines are the same and the third matches it, then he will he will create his own language entirely. He will avoid picking up wholesale phrases from the blues. Not maybe every time, but mostly. And, and some songs that he wouldn't even necessarily notice are a blues that he's written are a blues and create their own great blues lines. For example, in um, She Belongs to Me, 1965, uh, where he, from, from Bringing It All Back Home, where he sings um, this perfect blues line, but she's entirely his own. She can take the dark out of the nighttime and paint the daytime black. Okay, so if it's a blues song he's written, he writes the lines. When he smuggles lines verbatim or or tweaked into songs from this great ocean of pre-war blues, it tends to be songs of his that are not blues and don't sound like blues at all that he puts them in. I mean, a simple example from Nashville Skyline would be, uh, they say the nighttime is the right time to be with the one you love. I mean, you know, this is a country song uh, it's a sort of pop country thing. And yet, actually, yes, they had said that. Roosevelt Sykes had said it in 1937. Uh, nighttime is the right time. Be with the one you love. From a from a 1930s blues single. If we take a rock song of Bob's like Tough Mama from Planet Waves, can I blow a little smoke on you? Well, of course, when Bob's using this, He's using it as a seductive, you know, would you like to share this 
splifter with me, uh, this joint. Um, but but what he takes it from is a whole tranche of of pre-war blues songs, in which are on the theme that the train is taking away the loved one, and to add insult to injury, as the guy, usually a guy, is standing there seeing the train pull out, the smokestack lightning of the train is blowing its black smoke on on the singer, on the narrator of the song. So so that's one way in which he in which he uses things. Um another example might be from uh you know let's keep it between us where where he sings at least in one in one of the versions of that song he sings uh let's move to the back of the back of the bus well there's two things going on there first of all it's one of his it's one of his double endings like the finishing end or the final end or in the case of um in the case of uh uh key west the horizon line you know, I mean, the horizon means a lie, you know. And so he's not just saying, let's move to the back of the bus. He's saying, let's move to the back of the back of the bus. But this, you know, this brings into it for anyone with any kind of consciousness about the world they're living in, an echo of the oppressed, the black people, black Americans, had to be at the back of the bus. This is still in being created with this stuff. Another example might be uh, on a very early song he sings about them riding blinds. Well, now the blinds, uh, uh, the blinds are a dangerous place to try and have a ride between the coaches of the train, between the trucks of the train, you know, where you can easily fall off and kill yourself. Well, there are lots and lots of old blues songs that refer to riding the blinds. But none of them use the phrase that Dylan creates from that, which is simply them riding blinds. Why do I think that's any good as a, as a phrase? Because it, it brings in the implication of dread about this thing, you know, them riding blinds. If you know anything about what that means, you know that that doesn't mean, oh, I'm looking forward to them riding blinds. You know that it means dangerous, dangerous stuff, you know, is ahead. I'm, I'm contemplating dangerous stuff. So, you know, that's, that's an original phrase, and, and it's very simple. And if he weren't steeped in the old blues songs, that refer to the riding blinds, then he wouldn't be able to do that. He wouldn't be able to create from it. You have to really know this stuff. And and as I say, when I was reading through this, Michael Taft kept coming across bits and realized that, you know, he really is an extraordinary sort of archivist of this, of this material. And I know uh, either Don or David Wass said that, uh, you know, you couldn't fool him. You could test him on any old Sun record and he would know. And I think, I think he has listened to 
an enormous amount of these old records, as well as having had the privilege of hearing some of these these guys live at the beginning of the 60s. And, you know, if we think about a song like um, Blind Willie McTell, you know, you can't, you can't write a song like that from outside of it. And, uh, and the point in the piece that you read about, about he's never become an archivist of it. He's, ne- he's never been John Hammond Jr. trying to carefully recreate somebody else's thing despite being one too many mornings, a thousand miles, and the wrong color behind. You know, he respects this stuff in, a, in order enough to be, be creative with it, but he's absolutely saturated in it. And, of course, so is an album like Blonde on Blonde. Uh, we talked about it before, but, um, you know, in 1966, when that was new, bang, what, what, what you heard was this utterly unique sound uh, this record that was like no other record that had ever existed well that's all we've got time for in this version of the show if you'd like to hear the extended edition the conversation goes on for another 25 minutes please become an fm plus subscriber you can do that in apple podcasts or at fmpods.com did you enjoy this show then please rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps. Also, sign up for seven days, our free weekly newsletter that puts all the top Bob Dylan news and links into your inbox every Sunday. Use the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening.